Hello and welcome to DNI Spy, the weekly podcast which uncovers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in today's episode, we are exploring inclusive design. And we're joined by Pinar Guvench. Pinar is a partner at Sauer, a design studio based in New York, a part-time faculty at Parsons School of Design, an author, board director for Open Style Lab and podcast host. A huge welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so we're going to crack straight on um, and I'd like uh, for you to really tell us about what Sauer is, first of all. Tell us a little about it. Sure. Uh, Sauer is a design studio with the mission of addressing social and urban problems. So the word Sauer is actually a play on the word social and urban, but we do feel like it represents our attitude. Uh, we don't <laughs> shy away from challenges. We embrace the discomfort. And we often say there is enough sugar coating in the world and it's time to get real and be sour. Wow. And, and how long has Sour existed for? We set up, uh, I think it was end of 2015. And I think, you know, it was more like we set up as like a design studio of like, we want to do like purposeful, cool stuff. We want to have meaning in what we're doing. So it was more like, we were a little bit like headless chickens in that sense. And then over time, we kind of really started to have a grasp on what did we want to focus on in our mission. And that was maybe year three or four. Um, and after that, we really like solidified our message, messaging and mission and all our projects started accumulated in that direction, too. So I think it was a journey of like self-discovery for a while. Um, but we've been around. Since and who is we? Who, who else is part of Sour? Um, we are a lean and mean team, mean <laughs> people um, that are all around the world. And um, our backgrounds are in like architecture, um, industrial design, design research, strategy, illustration, um, history, um, communication design. So we're a quite diverse bunch. Um, and we kind of take pride in that. You know, I think uh, it would be very naive to assume that we would try to tackle the world's issues in like one domain. So um, we've come from all sorts of backgrounds, but we also practice collaboration um, very, very methodically and strategically. And therefore our project teams sometimes look way bigger than our actual team because we bring in uh, the people who are right for every project with diverse professional and lived experiences. So we're a, we are a sour family and a big sour community, I would say. Mm, love that and so you've you've referenced inclusive design already and that's you know when when we look at your website when we look at your socials um you know that's at the center of everything that you do but for for people that are, uh, are not familiar what what is inclusive design inclusive design is um and i'm glad we're talking about this and sometimes it's also used interchangeably um it is designing with and for the audience you're serving Right. So the audience is actually partners in the process. There is a co-design process that is happening and it really creates authentic solutions to their needs. What's important to highlight is that inclusive design is not necessarily accessible design. Right. There are two different things. And inclusive design is not universal design. It doesn't aim to solve everybody's problems and it doesn't aim to serve everybody. So in that sense, it's really understanding the needs and the wants of the community that it's serving. 
and designing with and for that. And from there, it can grow. It can potentially become, over time, a universal design. I think, you know, um, iPhone is the best use case or case example for that. You know, the touchscreen aroused from the need of, um, you know, being able to touch. And, like, for people who couldn't really... Uh, type with buttons and that can happen due to you know lack of fine motor skills or like sensitivity but then it became quite intuitive and uh, convenient for everybody and now we can't even imagine going back to buttons so in that sense it can grow to become universal over time and with iteration um, but it doesn't aim for that in the beginning and and what have you what have you been working on that um, perhaps you're kind of uh, most most proud of that you, that you could bring to life for us. Uh, most proud of that's like picking one of your kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I'll give like a gamut, I guess. I mean, one example is that, and which kind of became like a poster child in like twenty um, twenty one, um, an uh, inclusive personal care product which we worked with uh, uh, Unilever and uh, Winderman Thompson. Uh, to create a deodorant that was um, inclusive of people who had uh, upper limb impairments, right? This can be a lack of limb, this can be like a fine motor skills, um, and really being able to provide greater independence for them to be able to do it by themselves, right? So that was a, that's an example of inclusive design with people with disabilities. Um, we have created like a solution kit throughout the pandemic uh, with uh, working uh, moms and their kids mm. because the, at that time the house was a blended life. It was the school, it was the office, it was the family life. Mm-hmm. So we co-created um, kind of activities with them that can help them mitigate the chaos of the household uh, at that time. Yeah, um, We have uh, created a... Um, training platform for Department of Labor with people who are chronically unemployed or underemployed. So these are like a few examples of different inclusive design projects. Let, let's dig into those a little bit more then, please, if that's okay. So let's first take that inclusive personal care product that you designed with Unilever for people with upper limb impairments. So take us through the process. What, you know, who, how did they ask you? Why did they choose you? What did it entail? What research and, and what was your output? So I think they're like, it starts off with, you know, um, maybe a social agenda, right? I think um, ESG, like environmental social governance goals uh, among brands started to uh, pay, like help brands pay more attention to addressing social needs. Um, And with that, obviously, um, you know, people with disabilities is the largest minority in the world and it's one of the most overlooked and underserved community. And it's a very broad community. There are many sub-communities under people with disabilities, right? So um, I think now there's growing interest to cater to this community and Unilever knew they wanted to be more inclusive of various disabilities in their product categories and they were trying to understand how to get started. And personal care is one of the areas which is quite sensitive because you want personal care to be personal. You don't want to ask somebody else for help Mm. to take care of your personal needs, right? Like maybe if you can't open up a bottle, like water bottle, you can ask for help, even from a stranger on the street, but not necessarily with like a deodorant, right? So it's a sensitive topic. So 
Um, that kind of, I guess, was a decision for them to like prioritize um, personal care. And uh, we have great experience in uh, co-creating with communities and creating inclusive design outcomes, uh, which is why we were chosen as a studio to work on it. And um, there was a co-creation panel that was formed that included people with various upper limb impairments and visual impairments to also see that there be futures incorporated into this that could also serve another community. Um, so the process looks like, you know, doing exploration sessions with them, having co-ideation sessions with them, and just rapid prototyping, like really creating quick prototypes for them to give quick feedback on, um, and then iterate. And this was quite the sprint. We did that in three months. Wow. Um, and, uh, but because you start working with the community, not as a focus group, right? Like we don't believe in focus groups, but more as like design partners in the process. You're already 50% ahead of the game. The insights you have going into the design process are so robust that the outcomes you generate are already very desirable by the community that you're serving. So if anything, I see an inclusive design process more like hedging the risk of creating bad outcomes. Um, and I think it should be organic to any design process, really, to be able to generate more authentic outcomes. And so you you said there about um, actually you don't believe in focus groups. What what I guess what's that kind of based on? I guess how they're implemented, right? I think traditionally focus groups are like. You gather a group of people in a very sterile environment, <laughs> ask a lot of deep questions about their lives and what do they do yeah. and uh, and how they might do it and how do they feel about it? Like all these tough questions, right? That's one of my like favorite, like hate, like a love hate question I have. Like, how did you feel? I'm like, that's such a tough question. Like people go to therapy for that. Like, how are you going <laughs> to answer um, and then like you meet the group and then you don't see them forever until you have like almost final prototype. You go back and ask feedback and it's already so far in the process that you mm. can't even change much uh, in what you've done. But you incorporated some feedback and then you launch, right? Like this is very, um, this doesn't work because already we live in such a volatile world today. Like you can't ask a group something a year ago and then still act as if like that's true or um as in like everything that was reflected then was like law the law mm. right or you might even forget the feedback right like how how what is the uh control mechanism there that we're we're staying true to that like feedback that came in the beginning um and also we're human beings. Like we don't necessarily, like I may say that I like something. Maybe I thought about it. Like after a few days, I actually didn't really like it. Um, or because I was in like a very sterile environment with a lot of people that I didn't know. And I didn't even know the person who was facilitating the questions. I felt self-conscious and just answered differently. Right. So this is very human. This is very human. And there is no way you can develop a relationship with focus group participants right but like when you have people part of the process there is shared ownership in the process people start caring about the project they get to know you so they open up everybody starts feeling comfortable next to each other even if they reassess something and reflect on it they have the opportunity to share that update right so when you engage people in the process 
the process becomes more human and therefore more representative of what the real outcome should mm. be. That's why we don't believe in focus groups and how it's like implemented. And it's better than nothing, but I think it's definitely, um, it falls short to deliver mm. um, authentic solutions. And do you get involved in the launch um, of these products or once you've created them, do you then pass them on and, and you don't see them again? We definitely, when we start, like, I think, you know, the history of inclusive design projects are not like, it doesn't date back to, you know, a long time ago. Like there has been, we've been maybe talking about inclusive design since 2015 and maybe since 2018, end of 2018, 19, we're seeing more and more interest. So it's fairly new, right? Mm. And, um, and it's just getting started in that sense. So um, when we, when we were first working on projects, we generally were design, like involved in the design phase and rapid prototyping, and then we would leave, right? The rest would be up to the brand. Now, like today, we find ourselves more and more um, getting engaged in the soft launch um, because of uh, another issue that exists in the world, which is, you know, we try to innovate in, on a very archaic system, an archaic supply chain system, mm. an archaic logistic system, an archaic manufacturing system and especially depending on the product category but when we look at like consumer goods for example um this is not a category that is known for its innovation right what is called innovation is very quick wins typically it's not the tech industry it's not the car industry the r&d and prototyping is not necessarily super robust especially in packaging that could be more inclusive of like Mm. communities so we found that, you know, if we relied on the existing system and don't take more responsibility, then, you know, a vendor may not be able to know how to produce it. So to the brand, they might go and say like, oh, this is not manufacturable. And then the brand would be like, oh, this is not manufacturable. So we can't launch it. And the yeah. product is dead for no reason. So we started to do uh, more sophisticated prototypes first and then like mid-level, like high fidelity prototypes. And now we're even like overseeing soft launch we're overseeing like production of 5,000 10,000 because we felt like if we don't do it it's not going to get to the finish line and we need to see more and more of these so that was a learning curve for us definitely and I think that like you mentioned you know this is still um very kind of early in its kind of it's in its infancy this kind of work isn't it and definitely feels like a niche um where where does your kind of passion for this come from? Because it feels as though there's probably at times quite a lot of hurdles. There's probably also, um, you know, we we both work in the diversity and inclusion space. We, we you know, we see a lot of it. So, you know, uh, you must have something kind of innate within you to be really driving this or or is it just that actually this is just naturally where you evolved to? I guess, yeah, where, did, where does the passion come from? I think two things. Um, one... Uh, we are very, very, like, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're very collaborative, right? Mm -hmm. We have no interest in becoming like a mega corporation tomorrow. We'd rather just collaborate with people. But collaboration is such a loosely used term. Like two plus people or organization in the same context doesn't mean that they're collaborating, right? It's actually an artful practice that needs to be planned well, executed well, followed up on well. 
And we were very big on it. And then I actually uh, created and now uh, uh, facilitate a workshop series at uh, Pratt Center for Community Development for Businesses on Strategic Collaborations. And I've been doing this for also as since 2015 now Mm. um so and i like that's how i open up the series i talk about like how what we use collaboration like it's not necessarily it may not be collaboration like we really need to understand what collaboration means and how we should practice it and design is inherently a very collaborative practice Mm. um the design because design is a process i don't know at one point in history like there it became a little bit more territorial a little bit more like show-offy or like designers suddenly have huge egos and names and it's all about them no like even when we say co-design sometimes some designers get a bit defensive because like they're the designer right and you're kind of like we're not saying when we say co-design we're not saying like a lot of people just come into the room and try to 3d model on rhino with you right like we're talking about like the process they're involved in the design research they're mm-hmm. involved in synthesis they're involved in ideation so i think like that already like we advocated for that so much that we need to spotlight the process more than the fancy outcomes mm-hmm. to make sure we actually create meaningful solutions i think that is something we often talked about which is why we're like also so passionate about inclusive design and i would also say in 2016 um, I had the great opportunity to join Open Style Lab as a board member. And Open Style Lab started off as a social service project at MIT um, to make style accessible for people with disabilities. And it grew out of that to become like a nonprofit organization, which is when I joined um, in New York City. And um, the collaborative environment and seeing how they worked as units, like bringing together designers, occupational therapists, uh, physical therapists, engineers, and Mm. a person with a disability and co-creating was the great capsule project I saw. Like, (laughs) this model has to be in everything, right? This diversity of both professional and lived experiences needs to exist in anything that we do. Um, And, you know, I've been part of the organization ever since, and I genuinely believe in that process. And if we want to address any sort of problem in this world, Mm. I think that's the only way we should be working. Um, So I think both Open Style Lab and our mission Mm. uh, and our mission's need for like a good collaboration practice really uh, fires us up in this. I love it. And, you know, you've said, um, in your opinion, you know, designers need to step up and really act as those human centered design advocates. And I think you've touched on that kind of human element um, and that human leadership. Um, But what does, you know, what does, what, what, what does that future look like? I think, you know, even if we're talking like, there are a lot of organizational change, uh, restructuring, uh, issues or like needs mm. in the world there's like ai out there there's climate change there's like we have like a gamut of things happening in all domains and, and we operate in complex systems right mm. anything and everything that we do however is a human thing right mm. if we want to adopt something uh, adopt a new practice if we want to implement a process if we want to scale something if we want to change yeah even if we have to collaborate with ai Mm-hmm. Humans are involved in this, and these are all human things. Yeah. So if we don't design our processes, mechanisms, products that are 
informed with human behavior and, and humans as a whole, right? Mm. Their entire life journeys, not humans in the context of they're asked 20 questions in a room and then we don't talk to them ever, but really all human stakeholders involved. If we don't try to like design mindful of this, it will eventually um, change. It won't be able to adapt. It won't be as resilient in such a uncertain and volatile world we live in today. Um, so I think, you know, human centered design is kind of talked about as a nice to have or like a, uh, oh, this is cute. Like, let's do this. I honestly think it's merely a survival strategy. If we really mm. want to be able to um, innovate in the world uh, and the domains that we operate in today, um, it's really the only way. Mm. And when Natasha introduced you um, at the at the top of this episode, she mentioned that you're also a podcast host and your podcast is called What's Wrong With? Um, tell yeah. us about that. Um. Well, we're by no means any professional. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do yourself down. (laughs) Of course you are. You're on Apple. You're on Spotify. That's it. That's all you need. It it honestly started off as we have brilliant expert interviews. People need to hear this. Like it was just like our want of like sharing and opening up our expert interviews in our research process gave us the idea. How do this? How do we bring this to public? So. Um, we sometimes hosted these like diagnostics uh, discussions we called by inviting like uh, forward thinkers in a certain field and discuss like discuss the underlying reasons of the problems we see in a certain topic and then idea solutions on that. So we converted those into panel discussions and we converted our expert interviews into a podcast series before a podcast became like the thing that everybody needs to have for themselves. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like we were just we were just record on Zoom and we continue to record on Zoom and nothing else changed. Yeah. We have no system, nothing. But we love what we do. And we I love talking to people. And I'm just, you know, I'm very curious to hear about everything that I don't know about, about or think that I know about. So um, and it, I can't believe it, but we started in 2019 and uh, we are at our 100th episode in the upcoming week. Wow. Um, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And so that resulted in now, like what we're seeing in these like hundred expert interviews, regardless of the industry or field that the person is in, there is in, mm. we see some overlapping universal insights that keep popping up in these like conversations. So mm. these are four or five of them. And we're turning this into a synthesis series uh, in collaboration with universities where industry professionals, students, academics are going to come together to kind of unpack these insights. Yeah. And the first one is actually tomorrow with NYU and tomorrow's April 23rd. Wow. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. And um, I know that we probably have like the same feeling, but when you look back, is there there a favorite episode that you would point people to, do you think? (laughs) Again, (laughs) again, asking about your uh, favorite child, right? <laughs> oh my god. Um okay, I'll I'll refer to recent season so that I'm fair, right? Um <laughs> and one of the one of the very recent conversations I had with Imbar Kashani and since we're talking about inclusive design, I want to highlight that one. Um she talks about she works for uh Lyft uh with the City Bike program in mm. New York City. And she 
gives brilliant examples on how community co-creation and community engagement can happen in an urban scale. Mm. And I recommend the audience to listen to that. It's listening about like how you can be more inclusive and how you can co-create with communities in a much different scale Mm. and typology. So, and yeah, she's brilliant. I definitely recommend that. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, You've definitely opened my eyes to inclusive design. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, one final question. Um, We ask all our guests the same question at the end of our show too. Um, And and the way we see inclusion is it's an action, it's a behaviour, it's a doing word. So um, we ask all of our guests the one question of, can you give a top tip, which is an action for our uh, listeners to do? Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing I ever do for myself is to just expose myself to something I haven't before. And this can be working or collaborating with someone um, that is totally different from you. This can be going to a new place. This can be getting into like or out of your comfort zone. This can be going into a new, um, I don't know, class that you never thought you would like listen to. Right. But that exposure is what enriches our minds over time and also opens up our view about how to approach things. So um, I think just continuing to expose yourself uh, would be my only tip really, and regardless of what field you're in. Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you so much. I've um, I've learned so much. I actually thought um, naively when we first started um, exploring this topic that it was just about architecture. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then obviously did my research later on. And I was like, oh, actually, there was a lot for me to learn on this journey. So thank you. Um, love, love what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and, you know, spotlighting inclusive design. You're welcome. It's great. And 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 great to, to have a shout out for your what's with, what's wrong with podcast as well. Thank you. You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening. <laughs>